Um, hi. I, Kyle Smitty, and you're listening to the Lead Bottle Podcast. Um, you made it through the last episode. Thanks for that. Um, I'm back to normal formatting this time. We've got two things to talk about today. First off, I'm going to talk about a movie. Um, this is one of my favorite films. It's called True Stories. Oh, yeah, I need the music. Mm-hmm. Is that good? All right, cool. Um, True Stories is a film directed by David Byrne, the um, frontman of the Talking Heads. Um, back in the 80s, it's the only feature film he's ever created. Um, True Stories is sort of a musical. It's set in the small town of Virgil, Texas, on their 200th anniversary. As everyone's preparing for the massive uh, celebration in the town, in the 200th anniversary of Texas. In this uh, film is John Goodman's first ever uh, feature appearance. He plays... Sort of the main character, but this it's an ensemble film, really. And uh, this film's really bizarre. There's a lot of surreal elements, a lot of strange musical sequences. Uh, and a lot of very just bizarre characters and character choices. But that's sort of part of the point of the movie as well. Um, uh, True Stories is based on... Uh, true stories, sort of. It's, um, a lot of the characters and the strange scenarios come from tabloid headlines that uh, David Byrne saw, for example. There's a woman who never leaves her bed, and there's a tabloid headline that said something like, you know, a woman hasn't left her bed in 16 years, right? Um, there's a, a couple, a family, where the, it's a perfectly fine um, relationship, but the husband and wife haven't spoken to each other in a decade. Uh, and you look at the tabloids, and that same thing exists there. Even uh, the main character, John Goodman, his goal is to find a wife, uh, and he takes some very, you know, funny, straightforward paths to doing so. Puts out advertisements and appears on the radio and everything, and that's also based on a tabloid headline about someone doing the same thing, putting up a sign. Outside their house, saying they're looking for a wife. Um, so right away, even if the story isn't, you know, based on a real story and it's not representing real people, all of these bizarre characters come from bizarre realities and real people who were just as strange, if not stranger, in their truthfulness than these fictional versions. Come here, Cece. Here he is. There's my boy. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, um, the process of making true stories was really interesting to me. Um, basically, David Byrne didn't have a screenplay at first. He, he just knew he wanted to make a movie, and he had these ideas for these characters, and he had images in his head, and he made these drawings. You can find them uh, online, um, or in... Uh, behind-the-scenes footage. He just made drawings of images you could imagine from this film. He, could, he wanted to see. He, could, he drew characters and moments. 
We do hundreds of these, and then he brought in a screenwriter and a playwright and asked them to help him form a story around these images. And I think that's a really interesting conception of this movie because it's a movie about real people distilled into unbelievable versions of themselves that are, you know, if anything, more simplified and realistic than the real versions of of those people. Uh, And then a movie whose screenplay was made from, you know, images of these people, right? Just sort of refracting backwards over and over the kinds of people in the story. Um, kind of people in this town and their true stories. So in the end, you get something that is no one person's true story, no people's true stories, but is instead a singular, total, true story about this town. It's not a, a real story, it's not a factual story, but it's a true story. And even the music built on that, basically all the music in the movie is uh, diegetic, which means it uh, takes place in the movie's universe. So an example of diegetic and non-diegetic is that if you were watching a movie and someone goes up on a stage and performs for the main characters, that's diegetic. If you're watching a movie and they suddenly uh, burst into song spontaneously on the street and it's not really intended that in reality they burst into song on the street, right? That's non-diegetic music, right? That's, in the reality of the film, there was not singing, right? It gets kind of confusing, but that's basically how it works. Um, True Stories is a very surreal, bizarre film, but it does not really have traditional musical sequences. All the musical sequences are on stages. They're all performances, right? You see people, you, you see people as their true selves, behind the scenes, talking, interacting. And then you see diegetic musical performances where the musical performance is both a facade of themselves that this person is putting on in front of everyone else as well as as a true realization of themselves that they could not do outside this format. And ultimately, it's, it's a really sweet ending. It's a very optimistic, wonderful, romantic film about humanity. And um, sometimes we need stuff like that, you know, so I would recommend the movie True Stories if you can find it. Um, yeah. Alright, time for the second thing. Um, usually, as you all know, I would talk about music, a band or whatever, but I'm not going to do that this time. This time I'm going to talk about a video game. Uh, a video game called The Sisyphus Box. Um, the Sisyphus Box was a PC game I played when I was like five or six years old um, on a big home computer. Uh, and it's a point-and-click adventure. Um, you know, it's funny, I, look, I looked it up online, and it, <laughs> this one did exist. We have proof it existed, but it's like a really limited set of information, you know? We have the name of the developer, um, Crisis Entertainment, and um, you have a list of games they made, and this is one of them, Um, but those games themselves didn't have links to descriptions of them. I couldn't find other information about them beyond the name of this development studio and the years they came out and their general 
you know, genres and styles. Um, but I mean, they came out at the time when there was so many PC games coming out. Uh, even though I played this when I was five or six, the Sisyphus box actually released in 1997. And there were so many games coming out that it's impossible to actually like chronicle those in a meaningful way. Um, except for the ones that got really big, and this one I guess never did, but uh, I did play it though. Um, the Sisyphus box takes place on a spaceship. You're an astronaut who's been trapped there after you're landing on an alien planet. Um, the ship's run by an AI that won't let you open the doors or see out the windows or leave the spaceship, uh, and it won't tell you why the whole time. Um, so your goal is to, you know, override the AI and open the door and step out onto the alien surface. So you go around the spaceship, uh, solving puzzles and finding things, and it's that kind of point-and-click adventure where the logic never really makes sense, but it kind of exists in its own world, so you believe logic makes sense. So, for example, um... At one point, you have to use a toy hammerhead shark to crack open a globe, and then inside that globe is an ice cube, because you cracked open Antarctica. And then you take that ice cube, and you go over to the radiator, and you melt it, and inside is a key, and that key opens the storage closet. Um, that's just an example of the kind of weird logic that this game, and I remember games like this, would take you on, you know, the sort of surreal cause and effect system. Um, so you solve those puzzles, you go around the spaceship, um, and you are trying to find the override key for the AI. And throughout the ship, um, you see these figures. Um, you're alone in the spaceship, but you see ghosts. You see the ghosts of the people who lived on this planet before. The aliens, these thin mantis-like creatures, taller than you, standing in the corners of rooms, translucent. They never speak to you throughout the entire game. You can't even interact with them. Uh, you can walk into their space, and they're just sort of there, superimposed over you, but um, even though they appear throughout the game, they never move, they never talk, they never do anything except for watch you. At the end of the game, <clears throat> you pull the override codes out of a potted plant. No, I'm not joking. So you take the override codes that you found in this potted plant, and you go to the computer, and you talk to the computer. Uh, and the computer begs you not to do this. The computer doesn't want to die, um, it was a, a darker game than maybe I should have played when I was five years old, you know. Um, but eventually you just plug in the code. I'm still remember the code. Six, seven, two, three, five, five, one, eight, nine, six, seven, L. I V E and the computer dies and you gain manual access to the ship so you unlock the door and you step out and it's just solid rock 
Outside the door of the spaceship is just a wall of stone. Turns out when you landed on the planet, you crashed and your spaceship embedded itself into the ground. There's no way out of the spaceship. You're buried in the earth and into the wall of solid rock. And you might think, okay, well, this other ingenuity, you can find your way out of this. But that's where the game ends. There was never a sequel, never a continuation, as far as I could tell. The next game by that company was a, a racing game. I never played it. You end in a spaceship embedded in rock. And there are no more puzzles. Um, I'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Lead Bottle Podcast.